Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 737 for release on Sunday, April 9th, 2023. On the program today, the Timor Eclipse and the early radio scene. Wandering the World with a Radio, Chapter 2, Early Experimental Wireless. On Thursday, April 20th, 2023, a hybrid solar eclipse will be visible throughout Australia and eastern Indonesia. Astronomers inform us that the best view will be available at Eastern Timor, beginning in the early afternoon. Here's Ray Robinson now with today's story. Thanks, Jeff. The island called Timor lies at the southern end of maritime Southeast Asia, in the north of the Timor Sea. These days, the island is divided between two sovereign states, East Timor on the eastern side of the island and Indonesia on the western side. The Indonesian part, known as West Timor, constitutes part of the Indonesian province of East Nusa Tenggara. The whole island covers an area of 11,883 square miles. The name Timor is a variant of Timur in the Malay language and it means east. The island is called east because it lies at the eastern end of the Indonesian Lesser Sunda Islands. Mainland Australia, which is separated from Timor by the Timor Sea, is just 300 miles distant. The earliest known prehistory of the island called Timor dates back to the Asian colonial days under early merchants from both China and India. The first European explorers and merchants were from both Portugal and Holland, and the island is still divided to this day. West Timor was known as Dutch Timor until 1949, when it became Indonesian Timor, and East Timor was known as Portuguese Timor, a Portuguese colony until independence in 1975. As the nearest island with a European settlement at the time, Timor was the destination of William Bly and the seamen who were loyal to him following the infamous mutiny on the Bounty near Pitcairn Island in 1789. It was also the location where survivors of the wrecked HMS Pandora, sent to arrest the Bounty mutineers, landed in 1791 after their ship sank on the Great Barrier Reef off the eastern coast of Australia. Through the years, the island of Timor has undergone more than its share of turmoil and international trouble. Although Portugal was neutral during World War II, Portuguese Timor was occupied by Australian and Dutch forces in December 1941. And then just a couple of months later, the Japanese occupied Timor beginning in February 1942. A contingent from the Japanese army on Timor Island scouted and filmed the Northwest Islands of Australia with Air Force coverage in 1944. Soon after the end of World War I, both the Dutch and Portuguese established communication wireless stations on the island of Timor in 1921. The Dutch at Copang under the international callsign PKD and the Portuguese at Dili under the international callsign CRE. At the time, the Dutch operated a whole network of 20 or more low-powered wireless communication stations throughout the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia, though the Portuguese station CRE was a complete loner. 
However, nearly 10 years later, in November 1940, the Portuguese established an additional communication station at Vila Taviro, a low-powered 10-watt unit operating on shortwave 4,000 kHz. Just before the arrival of the Japanese army in February 1942, the Australian consul in Dili communicated with the Australian government by sending messages via the Dutch station PKD at Kopang. The Australian Armed Forces soon afterwards, in 1943, constructed a small radio transmitter for communication with Northern Army headquarters in Darwin, Northern Territory. Now, the coming solar eclipse will be visible on the island of Timor during the early afternoon of Thursday, April the 20th. The American space agency NASA has asked WaveScan and other radio organisations throughout the world for assistance during this eclipse event as well as during other coming eclipse events also. NASA is requesting monitoring information at the time of the eclipse from international radio listeners and amateur radio operators throughout the world, and particularly within the United States itself. We here at WaveScan would also be pleased to receive radio monitoring information during this coming eclipse, and in particular from the areas of darkness and semi-darkness in the South Pacific and the islands of Southeastern Asia. You can email Adrian Peterson, our Editor-in-Chief, direct with any observations at adrian.m.peterson at gmail.com. That's Peterson spelt P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, and again it's adrian.m.peterson at gmail.com. Thank you, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. Next on WaveScan today, Wandering the World with a Radio. Chapter 2, Early Experimental Wireless. The first known public demonstration of wireless on the continent of Australia took place in South Australia in September 1897. At that time, the famous Italian-Irish wireless experimenter Guglielmo Marconi was just in his second year of wireless experiments in England. Here now is Chapter 2 of Wandering the World with a Radio, our diary by Adrian Peterson, in the voice of Ray Robinson. Thanks, Jeff. On Tuesday, September the 21st, 1897, Professor William H. Bragg conducted a public demonstration of wireless at the University of Adelaide on the banks of the Torrens River, using equipment that was built at his direction by Mr. A. L. Rogers. During subsequent experiments, Mr. Rogers sent out wireless messages to his wife Anita that were transcribed onto standard paper tape, copies of which are held in the State Library of South Australia to this day. Professor Bragg and his assistants continued their wireless experiments, gradually increasing the distances between transmitter and receiver. And then on Friday, June 23, 1899, Professor Bragg successfully transmitted a one-way wireless signal from the Adelaide Observatory on West Terrace to Henley Beach, a distance of five miles. At the time, that was the longest distance in Australia for the successful transmission of a wireless signal. The transmitter equipment was housed in a galvanised iron shed at the Adelaide Observatory on West Terrace that had been erected specifically for experimental wireless work. That building was removed soon after the beginning of World War II and the property was taken over as part of the Adelaide Boys High School. Temporary receiver equipment was erected in the Sand Hills at Henley Beach and Adrian Peterson's father showed him that it was against the southern edge of the wooden walkway at the Henley Beach jetty. 
It's presumed that a similar galvanised iron shed was installed temporarily at the beach location on the edge of Gulf St Vincent in order to protect the wireless equipment from the blowing sand. The single wire aerial was attached to a tall wooden pole that was probably lashed against the wooden jetty for support. Similar wireless experiments were conducted in each of the six British colonies in Australia that were at the time in the process of linking up to form the federation of what became the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901. The wireless experiments in the other colonies and states in Australia were approximately in parallel with the developmental work in South Australia, or perhaps a little behind. On August 10, 1899, Mr P.B. Walker, chief engineer for the telegraph system operated by the post office in Sydney, New South Wales, demonstrated wireless experiments before a group of invited personnel. That somewhat public demonstration was staged in the GPO building in Martin Place, Sydney, with the aerials for transmission and reception attached at opposite ends of the building up near the roof. That wireless event was reported in the daily newspapers in Sydney the next day. However, there was very little official experimentation subsequently, though amateur experimenters carried on with their own adaptations and developments. The first wireless experiments in Perth, Western Australia, began on October 11, 1899, when Mr G.P. Stevens, with the Telegraph branch of the post office, installed a transmitter in the Royal Yacht Club building and a receiver on the police launch on the Swan River. Morse code signals were received on the motor vessel up to a distance of about three quarters of a mile. Early in the following year, 1900, Mr W.P. Hallam, also with the post office Telegraph branch, conducted wireless experiments on land in Hobart on the island of Tasmania and from a boat on the Derwent River nearby. On July 3rd of the following year, 1901, during the arrival on the royal yacht Ophir of the Duke and Duchess of York, later King George V and Queen Mary, Hallam was successful in conducting a two-way welcome in Morse code to the royal visitors, with wireless equipment installed at the One Tree Lighthouse, a little south of Hobart. Another post office engineer in the experimental wireless era in Australia was Mr H.W. Genvey in Melbourne, Victoria. During Easter 1901, which that year was in early April, Genvey installed a temporary wireless station at Point Cook, a coastal suburb some 15 miles southwest of the Melbourne Central Business District. Communication in Morse code was achieved between Point Cook Station and his own home station at Red Bluff, a distance of 10 miles. A kite at Point Cook was used with considerable difficulty to suspend the aerial. The following month, May 1901, the Duke and Duchess of York were due to sail on to Melbourne, and in anticipation of their arrival aboard the RMS Ophir, the wireless equipment was transferred from Point Cook and reinstalled at the Queenscliff Lighthouse on the Western Head at the entrance to Port Phillip Bay. Again, kites and balloons were used to raise the single wire aerial, but this time unsuccessfully, and ultimately it was tied to the top of the signal mast at the lighthouse. But successful two-way communications were conducted for nearly three weeks. And then up at Brisbane in Queensland, Successful wireless tests were conducted between the British Navy base at Kangaroo Point in inner suburban Brisbane and the Navy vessel Gay Under in nearby Moreton Bay during the year 1900. 
The land-based equipment at Kangaroo Point was installed in a galvanised iron shed in the grounds of St Mary's Anglican Church. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks very much, Ray, for Chapter 2 of Adrian Peterson's Wandering the World with a Radio. Usually on the second Sunday of the month, we have Henry Umarai's DX report from the Philippines. But since I'm still in Australia as this program airs, I had to record it in advance. So we'll have Henry's Philippine DX report in a couple of weeks after I've returned to the Okeechobee studios of Wavescan. Last week, we had the first part of a fascinating talk by Steve Herman, chief national correspondent of The Voice of America which he gave to the National Association of Shortwave Broadcasters 2022 annual meeting at Radio Free Asia in Washington, D.C. Steve provided a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to be a news correspondent for The Voice of America. Here's part two of that recording. So, despite my lack of engineering acumen, I did go, uh, the summer I graduated from high school, I went to Los Angeles, California, to the Don Martin School of Broadcasting in Hollywood, California. And they had an FCC first-class cram course over a period of a, I think it was a couple of months, prepared us. Again, you had to go down to the FCC and, and take this test. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Which do you think? Is the extra-class ham test tougher than the FCC first-class? Does anybody have opinions on that? I actually think the extra class ham test is tougher, if you ask me. It's tough to memorize that uh, pool for the extra class. I've tried. I have been studying for it for years, and somehow at the age of uh, 17, I passed the first class because uh, I lived in Las Vegas, and I wanted to work in local radio, you know, running the board on one of those night shifts, and there was a 50-kilowatt directional station in Las Vegas, KDWN, and if you were going to be a board operator at that station, you needed a first-class ticket. I never ended up working at that station. I, I don't think I ever worked at a station where I needed more than the third. Uh, and I did, I, I did work for an AM-FM combo, KORK, 920 AM at the time, I think it was a 5,000 watt, and we did have to take the transmitter readings and, and all that sort of stuff. But So, uh, well, I was pretty proud I got that first-class ticket. And uh, over the uh, decades, I, uh, during the course of my uh, reporting from many countries, um, I would try to take along uh, some gear with me. And what I realized is, um, even though I had a very modest signal with very, uh, very terrible antennas, that somehow, compared to being in Japan, if I was in a place like Bhutan, everybody could hear me, and I was 5'9". Um, and it was an amazing experience. So I've operated uh, Bhutan. I uh, lived in Korea, lived in Thailand, S21 VOA. Anybody know where that is? Bangladesh. Uh, T6AD is Afghanistan. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. T88SH was Palau. I was based in India. That's VU3USJ. 7J1AIL was 7J was a prefix for foreigners at at the time. And uh, 9N7VOA was Nepal. It took me a week and a half. It was a catch-22 going from office to office because I didn't. I figured out later I was supposed to bribe somebody to expedite uh, the whole process. Although with VOA, we're not allowed. We're part of the federal government. We can't bribe anybody. So by the time I got the license, I had to leave the country. And one of these days, I will operate from Nepal. 
And so this is a copy of my G- Japanese amateur radio license. And, um, yeah, it, it actually, I was uh, limited uh, to um, uh, 50 watts mobile. Um, there's a, as you know, there's lots of Japanese on the air if you're a ham who supposedly are QRP stations, but boy, are they really, really loud. Sort of like the Russians with their, yeah, well, it's the, an- the antennas, but I think a few of them have amps too. And um, so that was my QSL card. This uh, was a, I, I forget which model it was, this Yaisu. I did not own this rig. Um, Yaisu wanted a, basically a white guy to be in their ads and I happen to live in Tokyo so I agreed to be in their ads they'd pay me like a hundred bucks 200 bucks I think one time they gave me an, a handy talkie but uh, unfortunately I was hoping that they would give me this radio but they did not uh, so and I, I was a loyal Yaisu operator for years until I was turned on to the ICOM 7300 and <laughs> You know, Yais is not paying me anymore, so I can say that. So it's another another ad we did in Tokyo for some Yaisu equipment. Uh, the expedition, Okinawa, Yaiyama Islands. So I uh, did uh, manage, to, uh, this wasn't a contest I won. This says single operator, all band, inside Japan, 55th place. You know, it's very tough to win a contest in, in Japan with all the Japanese hams. Uh, Palau uh, operated uh, from there. That was that was pretty cool. There was a hotel set up with a Yaisu line of equipment and an amp and uh, uh, some incredible antennas. The engineer for the hotel was a ham and had set this up as a, a ham staycation uh, for for mo- mainly hams from Japan operated the station. That was uh, my son at the time. He's now 23 years old, living in Japan. So, yeah, there's the the amplifier and the rotator for for the antenna. And I I think I look exactly the same, right? So yes, I won a contest. Single operator, all band from Palau, first place, CW year 2000. Probably the epitome of my ham radio contesting. Um, that was Bhutan. Operated from there a couple of times. It's an incredible place. Highly recommended if you ever get over to that part of the world, do uh, uh, visit uh, Kingdom of Bhutan. And I'm o- operating in Bhutan. Uh, it's uh, my Indian ham license, which was actually a license for an amateur wireless telegraph station. So you can tell they haven't changed the forms very much from the, the era of when the Brits uh, were, um, were r- running uh, the place. That was my QSL card. A New Caledonia, I got a license, never operated there, but, but uh, FK slash K7USJ. Hong Kong, that was always a tough one because we were in a high-rise building somewhere. You try to throw an antenna out the side of the building. It's probably almost impossible these days because of the QRN level you would get in an uh, urban environment like that. A uh, couple of stations I operated from South Korea. Okay, won another contest in South Korea. Sorry for the non-hams in the audience. This is probably pretty boring. Uh, yeah, so this is my Thai, Thai license, which had separate operator and station licenses. That, that is something you'll run into in uh, some countries. The very interesting thing about Thailand is 
your station license, you had to have a, a radio approved. It could not have six meters, 52 megahertz in it, because I think the communist insurgents had been operating using six meters, and so they didn't want any six-meter radios coming into the country. I, it may have changed. Somebody will have to tell me about that. And this is, uh, I was in Afghanistan a few times, and it got on the air. Um, there is a, uh, was a bureau, I think it may still be there, it was, uh, RFE is called Azadi, right? Radio Azadi in uh, Afghanistan. VOA operated from there, so we were in, in the bureau uh, there operating. I think I've got a picture of that set up. Yep, so here we are in Kabul, um, Afghanistan. And there were, there were a number of other hams there who were in the U.S. military, obviously, so it wasn't as uh, rare as, say, North Korea. And uh, unfortunately, one of the hams that I met there, WA2EWE, was T6AF, uh, died uh, uh, shortly after I met him. Uh, there was an Afghan pilot came into Kabul airport, uh, and he was obviously a plant from the Taliban, and killed, I think it was 11 uh, people in the room, and unfortunately, um, uh, Jim was, was one of the casualties. He was over there training Afghan helicopter pilots. So, um, I think, again, this is not news to any of you in this room, but uh, the Broadcasting Board of Governors is now called the U.S. Agency for Global Media, and um, there's a bunch of networks. There are two federal networks, Voice of America and then OCB Office of Cuba Broadcasting, which is Radio and TV Marti. The other entities under U.S. AGM are uh, grantees, which means although they're under the U.S. AGM umbrella and their money comes from Congress, they are not part of the federal government. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a foreign service officer under U.S. AGM, not under State Department. I emphasize that. And then the rest of the full-time staffers at VOA are part of the uh, civil service. And then, of course, we have contractors, too. But um, the people who work in this building uh, at RFA and RFERL in Prague Middle East Broadcasting Networks, which is headquartered in Springfield, Virginia. I haven't, has anybody been out to their headquarters? MEBN? Anybody been out there? Okay. Does it really exist? We have to go out and check it out, Kim. Okay. And then there is the Open Technology Fund, which was um, uh, an instrument to um, uh, promote technology, like using VPNs. This became a bit of a political football near the, the end of the last administration where there are all sorts of allegations about misappropriation of funds, etc. I never understood what any of that was about. But uh, it's also under the USAGM umbrella, and uh, they're, as far as I know, um, back in business. Uh, so that is, that is the USAGM family. And a different uh, change that was actually... Um, in, this all started in the Obama administration where they decided, you know, Hillary Clinton had famously called the BBG dysfunctional. So they um, decided to rename it and put an all-powerful, quote-unquote, chief executive officer in charge of, of USAGM. And the board, which was a part-time board, which really ran BBG, 
was reduced to an advisory board. And I don't even know if this new advisory board, if there's any members that, that have actually been uh, appointed to it yet. So, uh, nom yeah, nominated, but I don't know if it's, it's actually met yet. So um, maybe some of you should be appointed to the, uh, to the board, although it's just advisory. So um, I'll, I'll zip through this pretty quickly so you can ask some questions. But uh, VOA has 47 languages as of today. Well, actually, it might be 48 because we just started a web-only service for the Sindhi, S-I-N-D-H-I, Sindhi language for Pakistan. So I think that makes 48. And uh, the weekly audience is 311 million. Address all questions about audience figures to uh, you know an outside expert uh, sitting at the at the room here, and uh, the workforce a thousand plus. Uh, I highly recommend if you have not ever been on the tour of VOA. I'm not sure if they've resumed at this point. It used to be daily at 12 noon. It, it's a, it's a really interesting tour to take in the building. Uh, right down by um, at Capitol Hill, uh, Independence in uh, 4th. But uh, check online and see if the tours have resumed. If you do have a chance while you're in Washington, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting building to see. And uh, we have been getting more and more into these sort of joint ventures under the USAGM umbrella. So RFERL and VOA have a global cross-platform, VOA 365, uh, targeting Farsi language and Iran. There's um, current time, 24-7 Russian language, which of course is something that's really critical right now. And um, there are also uh, some uh, joint uh, uh, satellite channels as well. We have um, um, a Burmese TV channel operated with um, uh, RFA. And this is a map uh, basically showing all of the, um, the, the entities out there. These are basically places where we have affiliates, uh, USAGM radio stations. Um, I think, yeah, I guess this doesn't have the, the bureaus or, or stringer networks, but uh, we have a very robust affiliate uh, network in places like Indonesia. So if people say, oh, you know, you're not on shortwave radio anymore, uh, the theory is is that this has sort of been replaced to a great degree by the use of AM and FM, and especially FM affiliates. Uh, I think in Indonesia alone, we have more than 100 uh, uh, affiliate stations. I think that's Mongolia. I think there is. I think there's an FM in Ulaanbaatar. Yeah. So that that's what that's what you're seeing. That's that one. You've been listening to Steve Herman, the Voice of America's Chief National Correspondent, speaking to the 2022 NASB Annual Meeting in Washington. Tune in again next week for Part 3 of his talk. And we end WaveScan today with folk music from East Timor, Timor Lest. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, radio weddings in the sky. And much more 
on Wayscan. Wayscan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, KVOH in California, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone.